better, smarter, faster. The neural network needed to power the digital ecosystem of healthcare is poised to transform care both inside and outside of hospital walls in traditional care settings. Meaningful data analytics positioned in real time to drive better diagnostics, intelligent operations, seamless care coordination, and integrated telehealth. This is the future of connected healthcare. We talk to the experts about transformational roadmaps for this evolving landscape, what's working, what's needed, and how we get there together. Welcome to Healthcare On Air, presented by Verizon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this kickoff episode of Verizon's new podcast series focused on connected healthcare. I'm Leah Sims, Marketing Strategy Lead for Verizon's Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice and your host for this series. We're launching this podcast to engage thought leaders and innovators who have a stakeholding interest in the evolving landscape of care delivery, and more specifically, to the role of technology in shaping and accelerating the digital transformation of healthcare. Over the course of this series, we'll be exploring the evolution of acute care delivery models and what the connected hospital of the future will look like. We'll talk about challenges, opportunities, and impactors on the threat landscape of data security. And we'll take a close look at decentralized care, the extension of care beyond traditional facilities to home, retail health, and community. But we wanted to start by focusing on the reason all of that matters, patients, the people on the receiving end of care, we can't address innovation or technology or new care models if we don't recognize that those things have to be constructed and delivered on a foundation of equity. So that's what we're going to talk about today, the health equity landscape in 2023. I'm joined today by my Verizon colleague, Robin Goldsmith, an innovation advisor in our healthcare practice, and our special guest, Abner Mason, founder and CEO of Same Sky Health. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks. So I met Abner. Abner, you and I met, I think, about two years ago. Uh, we were both on a panel, a virtual panel with American Telemedicine Association's virtual conference during the pandemic. Uh, I was so impressed by the, the knowledge and the experience that you shared specifically on this topic. You have such an impressive background and resume um, advocating for uh, health equity across the spectrum of healthcare, certainly at an advisory role within government and in industry. And so I'd love um, for you to kick us off with sharing your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you're doing at Same Sky Health uh, to support the way we're looking at equity uh, with fresh eyes uh, as we come out of the pandemic. Sure. So thanks, Leah, for the opportunity to, uh, to, to have this conversation. It's great to be here with Robin as well. Um, so uh, my name is Abner Mason, as you said, and I'm founder and CEO for Same Sky Health. Uh, just a, by way of background, uh, I, I got into healthcare uh, inadvertently. Actually, I uh, ended up. Uh, I started my 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 career with uh, consulting with Bain and Company, but through a fluke that I won't get into, uh, uh, I ended up working in state government in Massachusetts for a number of years, and I learned. Uh, ended up being chief policy advisor for two governors, and one of the things I learned there was the challenges are, uh, that states have around Medicaid, and I learned a lot about Medicaid, which is this national pro our national program to to meet the health needs of low-income people. And that experience, along with serving, I was ultimately appointed to the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS, and, and I chaired the International Committee. And I was able to see uh, what the U.S. Uh, was able to do in terms of providing leadership during the HIV AIDS uh, uh, pandemic. Um, it, those two experiences together really changed my life and shaped my my expectations about healthcare and what we can do. And, and I'm 
I, uh, that ultimately led me to create the Same Sky Health. And what we're doing here at Same Sky Health is we're using a deep understanding of culture and technology to bridge the gap between our health system and what uh, is increasingly a multicultural uh, population uh, and also a population that's really impacted by the social determinants of health. So those two issues really define the work of Same Sky Health. We want to uh, bridge the gap for multicultural people, particularly you know low-income multicultural people. And we also want to bridge the gap for people who are impacted by the social determinants of health. And that includes all low-income people. And I know we're going to get into that, but we're using technology to, to build that trusted relationship. Our clients are primarily health plans, uh, particularly Medicaid, but we work with other lines of business as well. And what we're finding is that if you uh, if you can uh, build that bridge, uh, understand who people are at a deeper cultural level, use technology to engage them in the way they prefer, which is text messaging, you can navigate them in the care at the right time in the right place. And I know we'll get more into that, but that's what we're doing at Same Sky Health. That's great. Thank you so much. Robin, can you tell our audience a little bit about you and what you're what you do for Verizon? Sure, Leah. Um, so Great to be here. My name is Robin Goldsmith. I get to work as a health innovation principal here at Verizon. I've been here a little over two years, but I've been working in healthcare in a variety of capacities for about 15 years. So I've, you know, I think everyone would agree that we've seen this incredible time of change. And I think if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, I know we're going to talk about this later, is it opened the door to a tremendous amount of innovation in healthcare that was needed, right, for many, many years. But I think the pandemic was the accelerant to look at, you know, healthcare in the home, how do we change our environment? So it's an incredible, you know, I think a, a sea change in healthcare we've seen in the past four years. Um, but health equity is something that is top of mind for every healthcare system I speak to. And I have the privilege of speaking to our large enterprise health system clients across the country. And it's ubiquitous across the board. Everyone's really trying to figure out you know, how do we reach folks that need help, connect them with the right services? And like you said, Abner, technology and connectivity plays a big role in that. So, you know, I, I'm incredibly excited to be at Verizon and, and what we can offer in this space. And, um, you know, health equity, I'm glad we're kicking off this series with health equity because it is critically important with, you know, how we approach, you know, keeping, keeping everybody healthy. It's all about the patients, right? Uh, yeah. And reaching every patient in every population. So let, let's start with looking at, you know, where we are realistically in, in 2023, right? So the American Hospital Association just published their annual environmental scan uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I know that's a, that's a resource I, I refer to all year long, just chock full of really good in insights and data um, sort of synthesized and collected across an, an, a number of um, uh, healthcare issues. Um, and health equity is one of them, big section in there on health equity. And so, you know, it's even though uh, there's a lot of focus on it, we're going to talk about, you know, what's going on in the startup space, how much, uh, you know, our customers and partners and uh, others across the ecosystem are now really zeroed in on it. But the reality is there's we have a long way to go. There's there's a lot to address. So, Javner, I know you can you, you can really um, put some context around, but according to this most recent scan, life expectancy has dropped an average of two years for all demographic groups since 2019. So since prior to the pandemic, 
Um, we've seen a drop in life expectancy over, uh, overall, but the greatest drop in that has been seen in indigenous black and Latinx populations. The risk of COVID infection, hospitalization and death is anywhere from 1.7 to two times higher for those patient populations. Uninsured rates overall right now are hovering around 11.8%, but they're 15% to 28% in black and Latinx communities. And affording prescriptions is anywhere from one and a half to two times more difficult in those communities as well. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But we've seen a lot of focus on it since the pandemic. For example, per this report, 72% of hospitals now report having at least one program or strategy to address social determinants of health in their communities. 84.2% of hospitals report that they are now screening for uh, patients for their social needs. So there is a little bit of movement of the needle. The numbers don't look great from, from a, a health impact perspective, but we are seeing more focus on it. So Abner, I'm curious, what did we learn about marginalized communities from the pandemic um, that's brought this to light that has now created such a focus uh, on um, addressing these issues uh, across the spectrum of social determinants of health? And how is this driving new approaches and programs that you're seeing come out of the health systems in general? It's a great question, Leah. So thanks for that. I think that you've you've described some of the the statistics, um, but I think I think it's really important to to recognize that we've known for a long time in our country that our healthcare system is not working uh, uh, as it should for everyone. That there are enormous disparities, and a lot of those disparities are around you know racial groups and around urban you know rural. Uh, high income, low income. Uh, so we have we've known that 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 we our healthcare system uh, just wasn't working. But we uh, th there was a lot of talk in the past, but there wasn't just there wasn't a lot of action. Um, and I think what what the pandemic did is that, you know it was a once in a hundred year kind of thing. You know, uh, 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 pandemic. And I think it. Uh, it laid bare the disparities in, in a way that it was hard for for almost anyone <laughs> to ignore them. And the, and the statistics you just uh, 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 shared uh, start to describe that. And I think, uh, frankly, it, th that came at a time when we were uh, changing, you know, administrations and there was a new administration that came in that really made health equity a priority. And I think sometimes it's just luck that it so happened that we had this this pandemic, which un uncovered disparities in a way that we just couldn't ignore it. And we had a, a federal administration come in that was really committed to making change uh, and to health equity. And I think the combination of those two has created this unique opportunity that we're seeing now where I think that regulators, and it was really important for regulators to get involved here because, as I said, we've known that these disparities exist, but our healthcare system just wasn't taking steps to address them, or our society, you know, more holistically, wasn't taking step to steps to address them, and leaving it on the to sort of the the goodwill of, of, of health plans and health systems. And I love health plans. I love health systems. So don't get me wrong. Love them all. But leaving it to their goodwill to really step in and lean in and actually do something to address disparities. My view is it wasn't going to happen without regulation. We needed right. strong regulation. And, and, and I think we're starting to get that and we're starting to see some results of that. And so one area I'd really, you know, focus on is, 
this idea of collecting data on on you know rail data race ethnicity and language collecting uh, sexual orientation gender identity sdoa social determinants of health data collecting data at the individual level we've never done that in the history of our country in the history of our healthcare system yet we know these disparities exist so how can you if you can't track over time uh, identify where the disparities are and see what's working what isn't working you're never going to get anywhere and so one of the things that i think is is so encouraging about the current moment we're in and this is a really positive thing i think in my view uh, we are starting to get serious as a country as a healthcare system about collecting data uh, the data I just described and other data. And I think that's the first step. It's necessary. It doesn't solve the problem, but it's the necessary step to really addressing disparities is starting to collect data in a serious in a serious way. And we're starting to do that. And I think that's exciting. That is exciting. I was reading not too long ago, really four pillars um, for not only health systems and tech startups and everyone who has an interest in this space that we really should be addressing it um, around people, uh, policies, processes and assumptions. I wonder what, what your thoughts are there, but I think those are four big buckets when we, we think about disparities and how we're addressing, you know, the representation of people, how many of those folks are in leadership and in key decisions to actually address these issues. And then policy changes, uh, both regulatory and within organizations, uh, but processes that need examination. But I thought that fourth one, assumptions, is a powerful one. What are the assumptions that we're making about about this entire issue and where those impactors uh, and pain points really are? Your thoughts on that? I, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, that we need the data and we need to come at this from the perspective of being uh, willing to listen to the data and 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 check our assumptions. Um, because that's the only way we're going to, to start to make progress here. And, you know, for example, you know, uh, NCQA, which is a, a national uh, organization that, that both uh, health plans and hospitals look to them to, uh, for quality measures, they're starting to require uh, uh, the collection of rail data. I mean, think about this first time in our nation's history, we're actually going to require health plans to collect race, ethnicity, and language data. Uh, same thing for, for hospitals. And eventually it's going to include sexual orientation. And, and, and as you noted, we're starting to screen for the social determinants of health. Um, this is, it sounds simple. And, and a lot of people who aren't in healthcare don't realize that their health plan <laughs> has no idea what their, what their preferred language is uh, or their race for that matter. Uh, and how do you begin to, to, to provide a tailored, you know, more customized healthcare experience if you have no idea who that person is? How do you build trust with people if you treat them like who they are doesn't matter because you don't know who they are? You have so, But we have the tools today to start to do that. But what we needed was policy. And I can't, I, I can't overemphasize this. You know, I'm actually joyful about this. So I think uh, what's really exciting is that we are entering this phase in the U.S. with our healthcare system, where for the first time we're going to be able to get uh, collect real metrics around disparities, and and being able to do that is going to transform, in my view, how we address health disparities. If we can start to actually know where the disparities are, to measure them, to have metrics around them, we can start to target programs to address those disparities. And that's the beginning of all good things in terms of, you know, health equity, in my view. So I think we, you know, I don't want to be Pollyannish here. There's a lot of work to do, but we kind of uh, 
not gotten serious until now. And, and what's exciting about the period we're in now is that we're getting serious about it and regulators are requiring at both the state and the federal level, uh, health plans and health systems to really start to collect this data. And that's gonna, gonna lead us to that, that, that next phase where we can address disparities in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, any thoughts to add there? I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say it better than Abner did. I'll just, you know, say that I completely agree. And I'm, you know, I'm encouraged as well, the companies that are out there providing those interconnects. So we have a 360 view of the patient. And, you know, when I'm talking to health systems, it's coming from, if I have more data and have a, you know, holistic view of my patient, ethnicity, you know, their zip code, health condition, if I bring all that data together, I can connect them to the right resources at the right time, because we all know that, like you said, Abner, we don't know who these patients are in so many ways. And if we have a better understanding of those folks, we can connect them to the right care and intersect earlier. So those chronic conditions don't, you know, don't only get met when they go to an ED with a serious condition. We can, you know, have that understanding and that data to back it up. So completely agree. And I, I just add a, a big part of this is building trust with patients. Well, I think the other thing the pandemic taught us was that people don't necessarily trust the healthcare system or trust what they're hearing from uh, you know, public health officials. And, uh, and we've always known there's a trust issue in the healthcare system, particularly a lot of multicultural groups, African-Americans have had a kind of you know, mixed history with healthcare and being treated uh, fairly. And, and uh, so it's always been a problem, but I think uh, COVID exacerbated it. And so it, to me, what it means is that we, we need to do a better job, as Robin said, of understanding who that, that patient is and treating people like who they are matters, which means having enough information on them that, that we get treated like we are unique. Robin and I are different. We have different life histories, for example. If we were in, a health, if we were in the same health plan up until now and still now, we'd get treated the same, even though you and I are totally different with different life experiences, different you know, abilities to engage in the healthcare system, different you know, the social determinants of health impact us differently, the plan would treat us the same. And when you do that, what you're saying is our, who we are, what makes us who we are doesn't matter. And that's not the way to build trust. And consumers, healthcare consumers have come to expect better. They get treated better by Netflix and Amazon. The rest yeah. of the economy treats yeah. people like who they are. If you and I were on the same Netflix yes. account, I guarantee you we get offered different suggestions. But in healthcare, we haven't we haven't done we haven't arrived there yet. The rest of the economy is ahead of us. So I think that that's another lesson from from the pandemic. We've got to personalize healthcare and build trust. That's it. Yep. It's it's really important. That there's a different, you know, the, to equate equity with same is probably one of, again, one of those assumptions we need to, 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 to break up. And the other thing that you said there, Abner, that I think is interesting is that if we are um, focusing on the whole person, their story, their journey, their fears, their concerns and trusts, then we're not just solving issues for patients who can't access care. We're also addressing patients who won't because they're not always the same thing. And um, when we look at how technology is deployed, it's not just a matter of addressing the barriers of, of people, you know, getting to care. It's also addressing some of those underlying issues, even deeper than social determinants um, that will prevent them from, you know, wanting to access care or seeking care through traditional channels. Uh, and if we can change the definition, it changes the dialogue and then it opens up 
a whole different way of solving for the problem, I think. So you mentioned data, the importance of data, the collection of that, the, the integrity of that data, removing bias from that data so that we can really look at what's going on and how it's affecting patient populations. The AHA suggested in, in their environmental scan that that data collection and use is one of the primary tactics that we should be deploying to address that cultural humility training, um, diversity and, uh, uh, and inclusion and leadership and governance, which we talked about earlier, representation matters. It matters in government, in, in, in addressing the regulatory barriers, but it also matters uh, in who's making decisions within business, within technology. And we're going to talk about our accelerator process here in, in a few minutes uh, and how important that has been uh, for representation in leadership and decision-making and innovation and um, engineering, even where technology is concerned. Uh, but the other one that they mentioned is community partnerships, which I know you have a passion for, Abner. How important is that? And then you said at the front end, it's not just health systems and it's not just payers as much as we love them and that we consider them the big, heavy, bolder lifters of healthcare. Um, community partnerships um, are a critical piece of this. Can you share some thoughts or insights or, you know, just some ways that you are seeing that work. Um, yeah, yeah I think I think one of the things, and I I, I fear I'm being Pollyannish here. Maybe you know, <laughs> yes, yes, there's a holiday, so maybe oh, I'm feeling really good. Great. No, good. <laughs> I'm being very positive, but I, I really I, there is another positive development that I see happening that 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 really uh, connects with community-based organizations. For the longest time, we've always we've known, and this is the way our system has evolved. Uh, medical care, clinical care is separate from social services. They're, they're, in our society, in our country, they're separate. And in the past, the, the, the clinical uh, side of things, uh, they didn't see it as their primary responsibility or even a responsibility to address the social services. So you might have a patient who is, who is diabetic it, and they have no food in the refrigerator at home. They'll go to the doctor and the doctor will prescribe very expensive drugs to address their diabetes and all sorts. Of, but that doctor can't help them with the fact that they are not going to get their diabetes under control because there's no food at home and, and they're low income. And the food they do get is terrible for their diabetes. Now, that's the that's an use case. And it, but it, it, that happens across the whole healthcare, the whole society. So um, we're not going to fix that overnight. The funding streams, you know, it's so funny that HHS <laughs> yeah. is different from like agriculture has food stamps. You know, food is, is and I, I think the AHA report talks about this, food is medicine. If, you don't, if people can't get good food, how can they stay healthy? But our system up until now has, has kept them separate and that has created enormous gaps. But I think a positive thing that, that I'm seeing happen is that the healthcare stakeholders, the clinical side, is starting to say, SDOH, those problems, social determinants of health, including food and housing, we can't keep this patient well if we don't address those other issues. And we're starting to see regulators, for instance, allow plans. And I'm talking about one example is the supplemental benefits program and the Medicare Advantage program. That's an example, that's an example of regulators at the federal level saying to the plan, we know you can't keep that member healthy if they don't have food, for example. So we're going to let you spend some of that premium for the first time on some food. These are they're, they're green shoots. It's early. These are new programs. But the fact that the clinical side is starting to put a toe in on the social services side and say, we need to do something because we won't be successful on the clinical side if we don't address those social. To me, that is a sea tide of change that's happening. It's, but it's happening so slowly that I don't think we realize it's hard to see it. But I think it's happening and, and it's gaining speed. I have to say that I think the 30 day readmit rule 
when that first came around, nudged the door open here because I think that was the first time um, the clinical side of care really had to pay attention what, with to what was happening with the patient post discharge or at home or post their acute event. Right, like we need we need to be looking at potentially some other impactors that may be driving those chronic disease patients back into the emergency room within those 30 days. That's when, and I don't know if you saw the same thing, but that's when I started seeing a pivot towards paying attention to all of those other social determinants of health and drivers that were impacting. But of course, it was to your earlier point, it was a, a regulatory pressure that um, that pushed that door open. And I think we've seen some things begin to move behind that um, that we're seeing now post-pandemic. And let me just add one quick thing about the because you asked me about community-based groups. It's a wonderful thing that that uh, we have these an enormous number of community-based organizations all across the countries and communities across the country that can help address these these social determinant of health issues. But we've got to figure out a way to pay them because most of those organizations live hand to mouth. They get they live on grants and the the clinical side is you know people probably always want more funding but it's well funded relative to the social service side and i don't think that we should medicalize you know sdoh so for instance if someone's hungry and they a food pantry in their neighborhood in their community is or, or some sort of food uh you know uh, community based organization is a better way to get them food than trying to have the hospital do it because the hospital tries to get them food it's going to cost 10 times more and really community based groups are better positioned to provide a lot of those services but we've got to figure out a way to to knit together the clinical side as it comes to depend more on community based organizations you can't just say to those community based organizations you need to we're going to send you people that you need to serve but we're not going to there's no money there's no funding there's no financial support so that's an area i think we've got to we've got to work on uh, as we as this good thing happens that the clinical side starts to realize they need to address the social services side. Thank you for tuning in to our inaugural podcast. We're going to hit the pause right there and invite you to come back for episode two, where I continue this conversation with Abner and Robin on the topic of health equity. We're going to pivot and talk about technology and how it can be both a barrier and a bridge to equity challenged people and communities. As a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast through Spotify and iTunes and through our partner market scale. And if you want to know more about how Verizon is accelerating the digital evolution of health, how we're bringing technology and capabilities into these access communities, you can find us at verizon.com forward slash healthcare. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.